Hey everyone, welcome back. For today's recording, we have a panel that was recorded at the Video Gaming and Society Conference at the Community College of Philadelphia. The title of this panel is Games Beyond Games, with the topic being games and how they exist among other aspects of society in and outside of Philadelphia, and where they might be in the future. The recording starts right after the first introduction because, well, I forgot to start recording right away, which means you'll miss Tom's introduction. Sorry, Tom. Anyway, let's get to the panel. My name is Corey Arnold. Uh, I work as the program manager of an uh, academic game design lab at Drexel University called the Entrepreneurial Game Studio, um, which was founded by Dr. Frank Lee, who is one of the speakers this morning. Um, so mostly I'll be talking today about um, game design and academia um, games. For, sometimes they call it serious games. I'm not sure I love that title, but it's games that um, are maybe built for a, a purpose like education or medical intervention. Hi, I'm Nicole Amato. I'm one half of Cardboard Fortress Games and Mini Board Games. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Celeste Cottrell. I am a recent graduate from Moore College of Art and Design and I'm in the Animation and Arts field. Um, <laughs> I am currently a solo developer and I am also a illustrated graphic designer for Red House Corner, a board game and card game store located in West Philadelphia. Who are you, Sean? Um, the moderator. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. Um, all right. Um, I guess actually we'll start with uh, Corey. You just mentioned that um, you want to talk about your serious games and how you hate that term. Can you um, actually explain why? Oh, okay. Um, so there's a term that, the, that kind of emerged for this new field of games that wasn't exclusively for entertainment. It started to emerge, as far as I know, in the last maybe eight years-ish or something like that. Um, and usually the, this title was referring to a game um, that was, its specific purpose was maybe to educate somebody in a certain field or to train them on the job or to even um, intervene in, in medicine in some way, uh, maybe um, train them to, to take certain types of medicines, et cetera. Uh, and, um, they started calling that serious games. Uh, I guess I just started interrogating the term recently because uh, the, the word just seems very unspecific to me, I guess. And um, they seem to, it seems to imply that the only thing that's not serious is entertainment, but also the games have to be entertaining or they don't work uh, for their design purpose. So it didn't seem to be a very useful term to me. Uh, but I think people still use it, right? And everyone else is welcome to jump in if they have anything. Oh, I, just, yeah. what I thought what you were describing was more gamification. Oh, right, I yeah. thought, uh, I think of serious games as like That Dragon Cancer and Brothers A Tale of Two Sons, which made me like die inside. Like, that's where I thought serious games were. Games that make me not want to live anymore. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Like, games that have like a strong like, emotional impact that are like supposed to like convey a message that like I'm like literally like putting it directly in your face like that's what I was like assuming with that yeah I'm aware of those games as uh, I, I, maybe there's maybe that term better applies to those than uh, these more kind of professionalized experiences that I was talking about here um, but it's true that the two things started happening at the same time maybe because people just are 
we played games when they were young, but became old enough to start making them professionally, and then they, you know these two things matured at the same time, both like the content of these more s serious narrative experiences and also maybe the, per the professional experiences. I'm, I'm not sure. It does seem to all be happening at once. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, my interpretation was definitely more on Corey's side, um, where it was, uh, I've heard the phrase used to describe games where entertainment isn't the primary purpose uh, when you're playing a game, where you're supposed to be getting some secondhand knowledge or information or building some kind of skill. Um, and I guess that can kind of correlate with like, I guess more serious games in, in terms of like tone. Um, but I think for the most part from what I've seen within the industry, uh, like working with museums and institutions, educational games, stuff like that, um, I've kind of heard that phrase as a, an overall umbrella phrase. You said you just developed a, a game about empathy. I did. Would you call that a serious game? <laughs> no, uh, I call it a good game. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I guess what's frustrating to me is, I mean, I, I think every game, uh, is kind of by definition an emotional experience, um, or at least an emotional experience. Uh, when I say empathetic games, uh, I kind of brand our studio as creating empathetic games. Um, I kind of use that as an umbrella for talking about exploring different types of emotions, because I think by and large, a lot of video games, even though you're doing different things, uh, you have kind of the same emotional reaction to them. Um, so if you're playing uh, like Candy Crush or Angry Birds, they're completely different games in terms of mechanics and uh, like what you're actually doing, but I think the emotional experience of playing it is almost identical. Um, and I think you can interchange that with any like first-person shooter or kind of any genre uh, when you start breaking down games into that. Um, and I think what we're seeing right now is kind of the, the exploration of games to evoke different types of emotions, uh, usually kind of heavier emotions or like being sad or, or just having empathy for a character or situation. Um, and so that's kind of how I use that phrase, but I don't consider that, when I think of serious games, I think that as having... It's like outcomes, right? It's like, yeah. these experiences are usually outcome-driven. Like someone will, will in, in the case of our lab, um, this is a, as opposed to what you're talking about, mm -hmm. what you guys are talking about. Somebody will come in and say, we want to educate this population in, um, actually, you did an anti-bullying, was it the anti-bullying game you did? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be like um, a stakeholder saying, we want to educate this population in, against bullying, and then the whole design kind of comes from that outcome, right? Um, and you start thinking, what what kind of game could do this thing? Um, that That's the umbrella that people tend to describe as serious games. This more maybe mature games thing we're talking about um, is, is also a, a trend, not, not an unrelated trend, I would say, but um, yeah, uh, it's a, maybe a, a different term or whatever. Yours is the more mature game. Like I don't think anybody's gonna, you didn't make that game so that somebody could learn how to do a particular thing or uh, like be trained in something or, yeah, right. So, speaking of- What do of, you think, Sean? Oh, I think a lot of things. <laughs> I'm also thinking about this next question I have. Sean, let's think about it just to pull <laughs> um, I mean, speaking of, I guess, the games and uh, how they exist in the you know the city of Philadelphia. I mean, we all know Philadelphia isn't home to any uh, really large AAA studios. There's a lot of independent developers, a lot of smaller studios. Um, 
And I just wanted to have, uh, I want to hear everyone's thoughts on how they feel games have made their place in Philadelphia and whether they exist in their own bubble or have they broken out and touched other parts of the Philadelphia culture and other, uh, other parts of Philadelphia society. And um, we can start with Celeste. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, well, I guess I can start with saying like games have been a part of my life since like a very young age. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia in Frankfurt, my side, um, and then raised up in West Philly for the most part, but that has definitely been, like, a large, like, impact on me, like, just, like, for the culture in general, um, and I personally tried to put, like, little aspects into what I've grown with and what I've dealt with in my life here in Philly into all the games that I've made, um, and I've, like, developed, like, several, like, small, like, short games on like game jams or just because or, like, the same pieces, um, so yeah, I would say that like, it was already in my bubble, but I also bridged out of said bubble to also see like other perspectives. So like when people come from like outside of Philly and like are starting to live here and then, you know, vice versa and things like that. People who are like leaving Philly and what they're about to expect like living their life somewhere else. Um, so I definitely say that like, I don't know, like I, I guess that it's always just, it's always been there. I guess that's the best way for me to put that if that makes sense, but yeah. Um, I have two things to say. One is we haven't made any games about Philly yet. My husband and I, but I would like to make a game about Gertie, despite the fact that <laughs> my husband doesn't like sports at all. I'll try and talk him into it. Um, and then the other thing, I forgot. <laughs> no, the, other thing, the other thing is that um, I think Philly suffers, I think it's gotten better, but I think Philly still suffers from brain drain. I think a lot of people come here to go to school here and then they leave and get jobs in other cities. We've had so many people come through Dev Night and they just, you know, they come to Philadelphia, they get a great education and they get they get cherry picked by great companies and they leave. So hard agree. <laughs> Very hard agree. And it's a bummer. I just don't know how to like keep them here. But we are getting lots of cool board game designers that have been randomly coming to Philly that I'm trying to I'm trying to catch them all like Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, I mean um if Sean didn't mention this, a lot of us here came up through the Philly game mechanics, which began as Dev Night. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> it began as Dev Night many, many years ago, and is now Philly game mechanics. Um, and that is the sort of community hub for game development in, in Philadelphia. It's professionals and non-professionals coming together to make, make games, and we do game jams and such. So in terms of having a community, I would say that's the strongest hub that I've noticed. And then there'll be different communities siloed within different universities, um, although some of them branch out and come over to, to PGM. In terms of kind of like breaking that silo itself and influencing the rest of Philadelphia, I think that's definitely a, a challenge, maybe a point where we, where we struggle a little bit. Um, I do know from working at Drexel that it's not an insignificant thing to kind of ask people to do outreach. People think that it just takes a little bit of effort to be like, oh, well, you guys you do cool things. All you gotta do is go out there and tell people. but it's actually more of a, it's, it's a much harder job than that. I think people are rightly skeptical of, of people coming from other communities and like forcing their art on them. And so yeah, I think it, it would take a, a more concerted effort probably on, on our part and like an actual like community manager spending a lot of time within different communities to actually break that, that bubble. It, it's just not an easy thing is all I'm pointing out really. Yeah, I'm sorry, I just wanna, uh, I agree with you about video game stuff with with the game makers, we have a board gaming development group called the Game Makers Guild, and we have a tough time because 
like there, there are some regulars who come all the time and it's great and there are other people who like hear about us and they've been working on a game and they'll show up once mm -hmm. and be like, hey, I'm here to play my game. We'll be like, that's not how it works, sorry. Like you have to play other people's games before you can have your game played and they'll come in and then they'll, they'll never see them again. So- You're talking I, about me right now? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I still talk about your bicycle game. Oh. Which I love. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, it's hard to, build a foundation and it's hard like it's hard to grow up from there and it's hard to get yeah. the word out like I think that you're right and um, Tom you've worked on uh, a game that was it the alchemy game yes. that was can you uh, actually so that's a good example of a crossover between games and then I guess a science and um, yeah yeah so that kind of brings together a bunch of different things uh, so we also um, in addition to doing kind of our original work we also work with museums and institutions educational institutions uh, just in the surrounding area and we had the opportunity of working with the science history institute um, in old city and they had this collection of paintings um, that was kind of documenting the history of alchemy and a lot of people think alchemy is kind of like this thing in Harry Potter or like this kind of fictional science thing. Um, but it's actually like really the, the foundation of modern science. And a lot of people don't know that. And so they have these amazing paintings that uh, depict the practice. And the problem is half of them or something like that are in a private collection where like no one can go and see them. Um, and there are these beautiful, gorgeous paintings. And so we have the opportunity of working um, with them, thanks to a grant that we've gotten uh, from the government, to uh, take those paintings and turn them into 3D environments and invite players to step into the paintings and uh, do the actual alchemy that they would have been doing in the painting. Uh, so it's kind of this really cool adventure game. We did like a small prototype and then we're hoping to get um, funding for a full production. Um, but that's kind of combining, you know, working with organizations across the city of Philadelphia um, and also kind of working with a more serious uh, purpose of just trying to get uh, the educational values out while still being an entertaining adventure game. Um, so that was a really cool project that we hope to continue working on. Uh, and then to, to answer or address the question about um, kind of the industry in Philadelphia, um, I do also wonder, uh, how unique this problem is for Philadelphia. Um, thinking about the independent game development landscape as a whole, um, I think it's really hard, kind of wherever you are right now. Uh, I think you can definitely have communities and uh, can kind of help promote each other's work and, and things like that, but I think just trying to um, have a strong public-facing independent studio right now in the game industry is very, very, very hard because there's so much competition, uh, not only in the United States, but internationally. Uh, there's so many developers creating really, really, really good games um, that I, 90 plus percent of them probably you've never heard of. Uh, and that doesn't mean they're bad games, that just means that they didn't have the marketing power behind them. Um, and so I think one thing that Philly's always been great about that I've seen so far is promoting each other's work and trying to uh, you know, support you know, all the developers here in the city. But I think that's kind of a universal problem. Um, and I think that the big difference in Philly is there's not like a big studio kind of establishing the industry uh, as you know, being present here in Philly. Um, but I think there are tons of, of great developers and, and the talent of the artists and the programmers and the composers is incredible. And I don't think it's, it's any worse um, than any other major city uh, in the US. Things better. Yeah, yeah, there's amazing talent here. So following up on that and the, uh, the game about alchemy, and just for everyone else could also jump in, um, I guess we started recording for this one. I mean, do you think it's possible for 
for games in general and the games in Philadelphia to to work outside of just the game development world? I mean, is it possible to make a significant connection with other parts of of Philadelphia culture, whether it's um, uh, professional sports or philosophy or mathematics or um, any other type of topic? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely do think it is possible. Um, but uh, I think with a lot of things, people would be surprised how much these projects begin and end with funding. Um, and, and mostly end, I'll say. <laughs> like, uh, somebody can be incredibly talented and good at something, but if, if, if their game is unfunded, um, they're just gonna have to find another job uh, and they're not gonna have the energy or time to, to make a game because the fact remains that making a game is is very, very hard. It takes a really long time. It takes a lot of expertise. Well, okay, I shouldn't, I shouldn't scare people out of it. I, I mostly say it's time. It takes a lot of time relative to other arts uh, and uh, a lot of like discipline to one project. And to fund even one person across the scope of an entire project at a, at a modest salary, let's, I mean, whatever, whatever you imagine a modest salary to be, um, is a lot of, Pretend we know what a modest yeah, exactly. salary is. <laughs> um, is, is expensive. So to answer that question, like I, I do think having worked at the EGS, we're constantly approached by people being like, we have this great idea, we, we're this foundation, we're this organization, we have a great idea for this game, and then we're like, okay, um, you know, it'll take three developers this long to make it, and immediately it's sticker shock. Like, and it's not even like, it's not even like uh, these aren't big asks. It's just like, well, it's going to cost you know three people a full full time salary, and then it's just like, oh well, we didn't we didn't expect to pay for the game. You know, we thought the game would just materialize. <laughs> so that that happens a lot. I mean, even with the Alchemy game, there are several phases of funding you have to pass through. Uh, I hope well, we we have worked together on this. That that can be caught up points. So I actually think. Um, to push the blame off of us. No, I actually think a lot of the responsibility lies in stakeholders in the city actually being willing to put put funding forward as opposed to just saying we really believe in games, being like, oh, like you guys make great work, um, we want a project like this, um, here's some money to make it, and then actually like let teams breathe and, and, and build games. Um, I think if that were to be more, more seriously the case, you'd see a lot more crossover. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I hard agree with Corey on that. Um, you can literally make a game out of anything, um, genuinely anything. So, for a great example, like I am personally right now, I'm working on a game with slow development because I work two part time jobs because that's like you gotta live. Um, Hashtag glamorous indie life. <laughs> um, but I'm currently working on a game where it involves like social studies and then like actual like baking mechanics and things like that. So like I teamed up with someone who literally went to school for like culinary arts and things like that. And they're just, you know, like giving me like, you know, like recipes and things like that. And like, you know, like having like, exact measurements and things like that. So I think kind of like cooking mama for like certain parts of it, but like not fully. Um, but it's definitely like, it gives people like an interest in like learning how to do different things in life besides just like, oh, I'm gonna go shoot them up or oh, I'm gonna go race and throw some red shells at people. Like it's something that I want people to like get out of and that's like a goal that I have with all my games in general is that like I always want people to like stay educated and like learning about something new but at the same time like having fun with it. Um, and I definitely feel that a lot of the time that again, like people just feel like, oh, like 
this game is just going to materialize out of nowhere and it's not going to take any effort at all and it's just like okay so that's me like spending like 200 million hours coding something because <laughs> it takes a really long time to do it for like one small mechanic but um yeah i do feel like you know like while yeah the trust is there like we also still need like the support like you know like it's the same way like how i have a personal saying where you know it's like yeah you can like retweet and you can like something as much as you want but like are you actually like you know like showing your support by like saying like buying something from someone's store or this that and third like it definitely like you know takes us a long way because not only does it help us develop the games that we're making like you know like it gives us more of a motivation to being like people are willing to pay me to do this like something that i you know like i'm a, I'm a professional in and then it makes you it makes us want to work more and if we get enough funding for it we can dedicate like all of our time into it versus like you know like all right i'm working a nine to five or in some people's cases like an eight to eight um and then like i can work on it for like maybe like an hour or two but like even still it's like as soon as you get home sometimes you're like dead exhausted you're like maybe tomorrow i'll get to it tomorrow and then you know then the cycle happens over and over again so like Having that financial support is definitely like a really big thing that I think we need to see more from in Philly. Um, because then I think that games here would definitely go a lot more of a long way, especially with like these other bookie majors that are here as well. Like um, with more College Art Design recently just having like their um, animation and game arts field. But that's like a very new major. Like I am the third class to graduate from it. So like, it's still like baby, but it's growing and we can see potential in it. Like my class only had about like 12 people in it. And now the class of like 2022 has 48. So, I mean, you know, like that's how like it shows and proves like, hey Philly, pick, pick up the pace. Like, you know, like, there are people here who want to make games and we should let them, but let's make sure we have the money for it at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like board games are similar to video games also. I think, uh, I, we know a couple of people who own board game stores and the one dude was like, yeah, 500 new board games came out this week. And that's not including like games that came out on Kickstarter, that's just games that he can get through like the big the big companies. So yeah, I don't know for sure. I think a lot of driven by Kickstarter, would you agree a with lot, that? I, I, less, than, less than it used to be, okay. but yeah. Uh, I think a lot, I think since the Kickstarter craze, a lot of publishers have started realizing like, oh, we need new blood, we need to start picking up like indies. So, but I just think that a lot of it is, you know, it, it's it's hard to make a serious board game because people aren't looking for serious board games, really. Like, I have ideas for serious board games, but I also have a, an idea about a game where old ladies steal chachis from each other at yard sales. And that one's way more likely to have a publisher interested in it. Actually, Nicole, uh, following up on that, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you primarily work in the tabletop space, and um, most of this conversation might have been geared towards digital um, game development from uh, as of now. But moving on, um, I want to know about your thoughts on how you feel the tabletop has an impact on the local community and where tabletop games and game development and developers um, have succeeded, where digital developers have failed and um yeah that's tough i think that uh there's definitely more places to play games right now like red caps used to be the only place but now there's thirsty dice up in where is it Fairmount. Fairmount, yeah. Yeah, Fairmount. and now there's queen and rook in south philly and there's also the philly game shop and there's also a place called darkest darkest depths darkest depths yes and there's a new one called boards and beers or Holy boards and brews that's opening up on uh 
basically Francis Campus. That's so Campus. many. That's so many. Yeah. And those stores are great because if you're a local designer and you don't have like a big reach, like you can just walk into those stores and most will be like, yeah, I'll sell your game. Like, and they'll buy it for you at like a reasonable price. But um, it's really hard to say. There aren't many board game designers in Philadelphia who do that for a living. Like Mike Ganade does it now for a living. And that's because he spent years like building up a fan base and was and, and also he like sold his website for like a million dollars or something like that. <laughs> no big deal. Um, and then he has a developer who works with him whose wife is a doctor, so he does this full time. And Jason Tagmeyer recently finally got to a point where he could stop working a full time job and start publishing just publishing games full time. But he hustles. I mean he does all, he works constantly. So I don't honestly know how it compares to like I, like I can only name maybe like two or three people doing video games full time. Are there more than that? There's more than that in Philadelphia, right? Yeah. Ten. I'm thinking now about drawing a distinction between like starting a game production that finishes and being a professional developer, right? And from what I've noticed, it, um, the board game scene here in the city is a lot better at that first thing, like starting a project and, and um, publishing it. Yeah. But a lot of games in Philly begin and, and like never end. Like they get locked in like these really long development health cycles. Yeah. Well, there's also like on the video game side of things, like a lot of full-time video game developers are making their own games that they're funded, that that have, they got funding for, but they're also doing a ton of contract work right. on the side. Yes. And that doesn't happen so often for board game developers. So like, yeah. so like, again, Jason Tagmeyer, he'll get contacted and get contracted to like develop a game for somebody, but like that doesn't that doesn't happen as often as it does in video games. I feel like it's because of the serious games trend coming up from from earlier. For for a for a brief span, it was incredibly. The only word I can think about is hot in like academia <laughs> to be like. Uh, you know what would solve this is a game, right? Right. Well, it was and, Jane McGonagall and gamification, yeah, right, right. all that stuff. Yes. Watch that stuff in the stratosphere. Yeah. Yeah. So did Jane McGonagall. Do you want to talk about Jane? No, you can do it. Okay. Um, <laughs> reality is broken. Yeah, right? she is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this book came out called Reality Is Broken. Um, that is sort of about games being, and really play more than games being like fundamental to the to the human experience and condition. And she was tracing the experience of play. Um, from pre-culture all the way through through culture and history and contemporary society, and I guess from then on, that's when games started being taken a little bit more seriously in academia. So a lot of these contract jobs that people are taking on are from, well, on your end, it's from like the National Science Foundation or the National Endowment for the Humanities or various foundations in the city, Knight Foundation, Wellington, etc. Um, but then I also think there's like there's corporations that are putting money into it now. Um, the biggest industry in the city here is obviously Big Pharma and uh, Comcast, <laughs> and the, those those companies are, of Penn is huge. Yeah, yeah. Are, are looking to make to do contract work in <coughs> the game space, maybe not so much the board game space. So everyone in the city who's an indie seems to be working on the game they care about, and then when they steal time away from that, working on I'm sorry, the opposite, working on the contract games, <laughs> and then stealing time away from that to work on the, the passion games, which is what your studio did for a little while there, right? Yeah, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think the opportunities for creating those types of, of games is, you know, you can do so many more applications, I think, uh, because of all the different mediums. Um, when you're approached by a, a company to do like a more serious games thing, um, you talk about your mission, but then you also talk about how you're going to deliver your, your product. 
Uh, you can you know create a game for mobile, or you can create it for desktop, or kind of whatever platform it is. Uh, and I think uh, it's really hard because I struggle with the idea of people actually playing these games, <laughs> um, and that's kind of sad as someone who's making them. Um, but it's really hard because again, the market is so crowded and so flooded right now with really really high quality um, entertainment content. And so trying to deliver that, uh, you know, more serious games kind of approach to that same audience um, is a really big challenge. Uh, and I don't know if we've really, I don't know if that's really the intent with a lot of these kind of more serious games projects. I think it's more just um, creating something that documents something or uh, can be used for like research purposes or something like that. Um, We're which, talking about how there'll be like a bunch of money sunk into a game. Mm -hmm. That gets gets the resources it needs. A lot mm -hmm. of time goes into it, but it's made for such a narrow purpose that it basically gains no audience, right? Yeah. Okay. Basically. Yeah. Um, that's intent. That seems to be the, the track for these more serious projects. Yeah. Uh, and so in that regards, I'm not actually sure why um, like tabletop wouldn't get as much attention as, as video games because I, I feel like if it's going to be going to like a niche audience anyway. Um, then having it, you know, take place like in an actual physical classroom or something like that would actually make a lot of sense. Um, but it does, but I think the make, making a video game when you want to make a video game and you want to like work through it and show someone with a contract, like you can give somebody a demo that's a vertical slice of that game. If yeah. you want to give somebody a vertical slice of board game, that board game has to be finished. Very true. Yeah. So the development time on those two types of projects are so different. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is what makes it so good on Kickstarter in a weird way, because yeah. by the time it hits Kickstarter, it is a pre-selling a project, right. like a product. Right. It's, a it's like this game's it's done. We're just gonna yeah. we're gonna print it. Versus, like I need to get twenty percent of my art and right, do exactly. this one thing. Yeah. But in video games, it's like you're selling an idea. You're like, uh, we did a little bit of this, but now we gotta go work our jobs. So right. can we have some money so we can finish it? And then, and yeah. it's not that serious games, serious board games don't exist. Like Sean can speak to this more because I don't know. Uh, Jessica was working on a board game for a national park, like a national park. The National Park Service. Yeah. The National Park Service contacted her to make a game about like environmental issues and climate issues and stuff like that. So it's not that it's not that it doesn't exist. I think that it's you know board games just haven't reached that point where like like I feel like the, I feel like companies hiring video game developers to make to like game up to basically trick people into learning is what they're trying to do. I feel or like I feel like that's a delay on the Jane McGonagall thing, right? And I feel like board games are on a further delay than that. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Like yeah. I feel like board games are finally getting like really hot and actually probably too congested at this point. So if we broaden this out to beyond Philadelphia, um, I mean what role do we think um, I guess um, not just the American government, but American institutions have in the in the growth of games and how they fit into culture. I mean, how <laughs> much of an obligation do they have to put money into this medium? And for anyone who wants to jump in. Uh, well, that's a fascinating question. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's like a pretty like big obligation in my personal opinion. Um, with our with our current like generations and stuff like that, and then like like let's say like start like nineteen eighties, right? I'm gonna go like to like the closest person that I know that like started like with like the video game realm and like just how much like, it developed and like how much it really impacts people's lives. I feel like is really important because like 
my mom, for example, like who was like born exactly like 1980, like she like. But from someone like her who literally like grew up with like games like immediately like in the household like things like the Atari and like the Genesis things like that and then like immediately like as soon as I was born she was like here is your first Nintendo system and I'm like thanks mom and then like literally like, that was curtains like that was it I'm like you can't get me outside no more I'm done but like at the same time it's just like it impacted me like that much that I'm like this is what I want to do with my life you know so I feel like that's the same thing with a lot of different people and then also at the same time like what people are interested in so like for a great example um, one of my younger brothers, like, he loved NASCAR games, he loved racing games and things like that. Now what he wants to do is that like, he literally wants to work on cars when he gets to work. So, like, things like that I feel like take a really, really big responsibility in our lives, especially when, you know, like, our parents, like, allow the youth to indulge in playing said games and then let it, you know, make an impact on them. Um, the same thing can be said with um, a couple of people that I did go to college with um, when I asked them, like, oh, like, why are you a fashion design major? And you're like, I saw this really cute costume in this game once, I think it was like Kingdom Hearts or something. And then they were like, that was it. Like, I just want to make clothes now, make them look as flashy and as nice as this. And I think that, again, holds like a lot of responsibility. And I definitely think that, you know, like, it should be implemented more into, you know, what we do every day. So it sounds like you're hitting on games design and production being integrated into like, like what middle school education or something like that oh absolutely absolutely um i definitely hard agree with that like for great example um when i'm not making games like i also like run zines i like i like to do a lot of charity projects and things like that so i also um do zines and one of the current ones that i'm in the middle of taking applications for and i'm working on is for the upcoming black history month in 2020 and that entire thing like it's going to be all the money is going to be donated to a collective called black girls code and basically it's for black, young black girls from ages seven to 17, and it helps them with all STEAM related like projects. So like they'll send them to conventions, they'll take them to like panels like this and things like that. And I feel like, you know, and they also get to do things like, you know, like making games and things like that, things that they're interested in. So I feel like, yeah, like definitely, like it should be implemented at a young age because like you never know where it's going to take them further on in life. So do we, um think, well, compared to other countries, other countries uh, often put a lot of money into public arts projects. And you know, sometimes they run into issues. Uh, for example, there's that Amaze Festival, it actually happens in Germany. And they're seeking funding from, I think, on Kickstarter because they couldn't get funding this year. But in the past, they received a lot of money from the government. Do we think that uh, our government is failing the games as an institution? And I mean, <laughs> I guess everyone's yes. Well, yeah, when I, the, when I went to Indie a couple years ago, I was shocked at how many people were there from other countries on grants from their yeah. government to make yep. games. And I was oh, like, yeah. I'm sorry, what? Like, There's a whole house. I wish I knew the country. I'm so bad at this. But there's, a, um, there's a, an Indie house in a Scandinavian country where you can apply with your studio, and they, it's like a residency. And there's like six studios in there, and they're all just being paid to sit there and, and dev because that country decided to make an investment in, in indie games. Yeah. But I mean, in, in general, America doesn't have the best record of investing funds into its, its art institutions, right? I mean, that's just part and parcel with the way um, 
uh, our kind of like hyper hyper capitalist society works, where those don't kind of contribute immediate value to whatever the American project is and whatever's opinion. Um, so it's not like games are unique. I mean, yeah, I think painters. If we were all painters up here, we'd be in a much worse position, <laughs> like trying to find money. So well, I think also art is used in this country historically for protest. Like, yeah, and I don't think our government is down with that right now. Mm. And I think that that's part of why they're starving it in this country. Yeah, I, I think it's also really hard because there's not a lack of games being made um, either in the United States or internationally, uh, and so. Uh, that's really hard. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I think, yeah, from my my position, it'd be great if the government supported more uh, independent game development or uh, the industry at large in the United States. Um, but I, I understand why, from an optics perspective, that would be a really, really hard sell um, to implement that type of change. Actually, Nicole, I'm very happy that you mentioned politics uh, because, uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, since 2016, for um, some reason, I mean, we've seen a lot of public protest for some reason. For some reason. Um, and uh, most recently, the most uh, recent example I could find, uh, there was some anti uh, Brexit. It was an anti Brexit march, and um, there were some. Uh, there were some. Yeah, some banners uh, related to. To Brexit and the goose from the entitled Goose Game. I just love how much the goose has permeated all culture. We've um, a whole panel about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good. We have you guys know this game, the Untitled Goose Game? Does, who's, has anybody played this game? Okay, cool. This game seems to have struck a chord with a, with players, but also it, it started a bunch of conversations. Um, was picked up in the Atlantic. Don't even talk about that. I'm so mad about that article. There's an article that was called, like, Why You Shouldn't Buy Goose Game, and I was like, first of all, how dare you? Well, anyway, it doesn't surprise me that this has come up, but don't make me explain what Brexit is, because I just don't know. Yeah, we're not about to talk about that, but, I mean, games have been involved in politics for a while now, and, you know, they're they've been linked to or blamed for a lot of, you know, violence and school shootings and um, unfortunate things that have happened. Yeah. But so what I would like to know is how influential do we think games can become politically and what the dangers are of mixing the two, if there are any dangers that we should look out for when trying to use games for political purposes or whether just using a game um, to make a political statement that's not even, or like, for example, with the Goose Game and Brexit here. The, fir the first place to start is that there's, there is no conclusive research supporting the claim that video games um, increase one's propensity to violence. It's never been proved out in any study. Um, the, the one bunk study that's always pointed to, it's not even worth bringing up, but you have to because it's the one that comes up, was a study citing sort of like heightened affect generally after playing video games, as in, your blood's moving in the same way it would after you play sports, and there's a short window when you have this kind of heightened affect in which you are um, like more likely to make a transition into like violence or whatever, in the same way you would coming off like a football field or something like that, right? It's an affective argument about the way our bodies process chemistry and aggression and things like that. 
your psychology professors, I'm sure I'm blowing this up. <laughs> no, it's arousal. It's the idea that it's, it's all the studies that look at the idea of arousal. Exactly. Violence arousal. Or, yes. or engaging in playing video games. Yes. That temporary heightened adrenaline and all those things that last for about three minutes. Yeah. After you've done I said an hour, so that's way up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's very short. Um, so this is the study that's always cited. So, so the argument is that if, if you are playing a video game and just immediately run out the door and go insane, maybe that would maybe that would hold true. But the idea that like prolonged play with engaging with a certain video game is more likely to desensitize you to violence, or more likely, I shouldn't say that because that's subjective, but more likely to cause you to to, to produce a violent act, I suppose, is, has never been supported ever. So anytime somebody brings it up, just say that's not supported by research and move on. Um, in terms of the... And also just stop talking to that person. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I'm going to just start responding to anybody. That's not supported by research. Just walk away. Yeah. Like, generally. Just generally. Just generally. Now, the, we'll the, the reason... We'll start with Boomer. Listen, Boomer. That's not supported by research. And then <laughs> the reason it comes up over and over again, as you might imagine, is because the actual political cost of um, protecting people from the kind of violence that people blame on video games is enormous. And we all know that, and um, there are very cynical parties at work trying to deflect the actual cause of this type of violence, um, and they shouldn't be taken seriously either. So, but yeah, this country has a white supremacy problem, it doesn't have a video game problem. But even, even moving beyond violence, how do we feel? Um, where do we feel games, uh, where can they fit in political culture, be it beyond the whole games make people violent? I mean, um, is, there a, is there a space for them? Is there a space for politics and games to coexist in a way that's beneficial for most people? I mean, I think so, but I think that part of the problem is that people, like, much as there are a lot of movies that have been made that the point of the movie is to make you uncomfortable and not for you to entertain it. People are now delving into that with video games. Like the point of the video game is to teach you something, it's to make you feel uncomfortable, it's not to entertain you. Like um, the game Cart Life that came out like five or six years ago. Like it follows four people who are in very, they're in financial trouble and they're like, I'm gonna run a food cart. And like each of their stories is really like desperately sad. And like every decision that you make makes the game harder and harder and harder. Like I chose the woman who had recently left her husband and she was trying to like raise her teenage daughter like for part of the time and like I didn't sell my wedding ring right away so I didn't have enough money to set up the cart so I had I couldn't like get her to school and then I lost my privileges of having her and I was just like this game is too real. <laughs> and like there are, there are some games like that that are out there that are like meant to teach you something and meant to like you know, they're meant to open your eyes to situations that you don't, that, that you, you, like, have never been in before. And some people are like, papers, no, please. I want to, papers, please, is another good one. But some people are like, no, I just want to, I want to shoot the man. <laughs> I want to yeah, see the numbers pop up. Cart life? Yeah, I, I'm I mean, really sorry in advance. It's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely, um, agree with that like I feel like there is definitely a space for it um as someone who is just your own black you know it's a very clear person of color and someone who's also like in the LGBT community like a lot of those things are very important to me to also integrate into my games um 
I am not a stranger to making people feel uncomfortable playing my games whatsoever because I'm like, I want you to take something out of this. I personally, when I seek out people who play my games and I have them like test play it, I'm like, you, you unsuspecting person who looks like they get about just about anything you want in life just because they ask for it, I want you to play this game. And then when they play it and they're just like, oh, like, why can't I get the thing? Like, why, why can't I get it? You got to work for it. And they're like, what do you mean I have to work for it? I'm like, you have to work for it. Um, and then they're just like, well, I don't understand. I don't want to play it. And I'm like, exactly because you're used to just things just being like handed to you or you're used to things going a certain way or like having like an exact similar like structure to what you're used to because a lot of games that I make they are really relevant to like everyday life I like to make things like have an impact I like to make games that you know represent me and people like me who aren't normally represented in games so when I put things like that out there sometimes I get the feedback of like oh, but why does it have to be this? Or like, why does someone have to be called out for like this? Cause like, you know, like there is like a part in one of my short games I'm in the middle, I'm in the middle of still developing is that um, it's a lot of like calling out like racism and things like that. So um, for a great example, there's like this situation that's going on in uh, Denmark right now. Um, I don't remember the full name, but it's like something P and it's basically like straight up blackface all over Denmark and it's just like it's it's really bad and it's like wow here in my 2019 going to 2020 okay cool um and it's a very serious issue and it's not something that's highly talked about right now so me and a illustrator who lives over in Denmark um are working together to hopefully make something um basically just bringing more awareness about it because there are a lot of people just you know parading around as basically like submissive um you know like acrobatic like black slaves like literally like to this day like there was a festival like about a month ago people just straight up wearing blackface and the entire black community there and like all over the world it's just like hello like did we not learn like did we not learn at all so oh yeah like there's definitely space there's definitely room and i feel like it should definitely be pushed like a lot more to like integrate that because again like people kind of just look at it like look they look at games and just like and eh, whatever you know when it's just like a shoot 'em up or something like that or just like a racing game and when it has like an actual message people are like I'm uncomfortable but they still have that drive of like but I want to finish it you know yeah. because like that that's something that's for sure is like people play a game and for the most part like unless it's like a hard level like on Legend of the Zelda you had to find like that Deku tree or some crap like that like I always got stuck I'm sorry um just because I make games and I'm good at them but um you know like again like people always have that drive of like when I start something I want to finish it you know like it's never necessarily like I want to put it down even if it like makes them uncomfortable and it's like you know they might put it down and they're like all right I'm not going to touch this for a minute and then they'll come back to it like a week later like okay let's keep going because now more mentally prepared for it but during that time though like they probably had that time to like sit there and think and process at the same time of like what they just encountered and I'm like good get it stuff in your brain yeah let it let it marinate some let it flow throughout your brain juices and all that good stuff because you know like a lot of important stuff's happening and I think people should definitely be educated and if we got to do it like throughout the politics and all that good stuff then fine by me let's do that I forgot what the question was but I just wanted to add is anybody watching Watchmen on HBO super good and it's super it's super relevant and they they started out with the 1921 Tulsa issue that happened in Tulsa and like so many people were like wait is this real like so many people were like, I didn't know that this had ever happened. Like even my husband, I was watching him. He's like, is this based on something that really happened? And I was like, yeah, this is. And it's 
one thing I sometimes try to figure out is what advantage games have over other mediums, in particular in, in the realm of the political. Um, and I think it gets to what you're talking about in terms of, I mean, not just presenting content that people don't know about, but making them a participant. Yeah, uh, activities like and culpable mm -hmm. for certain experiences. Um, you, you're, you're able to inspire emotions that you don't get in other mediums, things like guilt and pride and um, um, complicity. <laughs> uh, so I think if there's ways to lean into the, the political in games, it's in that area. And also an untapped area, I think, is, did anybody play Pokemon Go? The weekend Pokemon Go came out. Um, there was just people walking around, gather, spontaneous <laughs> gathering of large numbers of people, um, which is the terror of any regime. <laughs> uh, so I, I truly think if you want to direct people through space, which I think any good political revolutionary should want to do so, um, that that's an advantage. Um, so there's protest games out there waiting to be like, um, or even just um, social social media apps that are more geared towards the political um, that, that are waiting to be made. Uh, so I think that's, that's possible too. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think that uh, I think that video games are potentially one of the biggest cultural influences of this generation um, because I look at how much time. Uh, this generation is, is playing games and just how much influence that has to have on everyone's life as, as we've seen from Celeste and heard her story. Um, so I think that games are incredibly powerful. Um, I do, one thing I, I, I think the strength is of course that you can step into a character's shoes and make decisions yourself. And it's kind of this thought experiment of like, what would I do in this situation? Uh, and, and being forced to be in situations that you're not normally in, I think is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Uh, one thing I do worry or think about in, in terms of touching on serious social themes in games um, is from a game design perspective, how, how important it is to have a very clear bad guy that you're trying to fight against, having having very clear opposition, um, I can see being very problematic. Yeah, it like obliterates to, nuance, basically. Yes, yeah. exactly. Because um, I think as a designer, you're kind of trying to obliterate nuance, uh, because that's how people get into your game and engage with it, and that's how you have satisfying gameplay experiences. Um, so I think it could be tough to kind of address some of those issues, uh, but I think it's definitely absolutely possible, and I think would be the strength of this medium. And I'm, I'm happy to see that designers and developers are starting to finally try and address these things. Yeah, and I think we've talked about some of them already. I mean, Papers, Please is a, is a really good example where you know you're you basically work at the checkpoint between two countries, and you have to like it's just a game where you have to match up things as quickly as possible. But then like you're reviewing migration documents between like a war-torn nation and a relatively safer nation, and the game itself is just looking at documents and stamping them. Yeah, it's just like it's and then it's, as it. Do you want to explain? No, that? no, no. I, the, the best part for me is just that you never make enough money yeah. to simultaneously heat your house, feed your family, and keep everybody healthy. And so in order like, to do so, they force you to start letting in. You have to go faster and faster, and yeah. so you're, you're cutting corners, and then you let somebody in on accident who ends up being violent, so or like killing someone, somebody who's lying yeah. to you, etc. So it really does put you in a very, it really uses the gameplay itself to put you in a sort of culpable position. And then there's also like Shadow of the, Shadow of the Colossus. Has anybody, has anybody yes. played that game? Yeah. Like, 
that came like fucking destroyed me. Like the first time I killed a Colossus, I just sat there and cried. I was like, what have I done? Like I've made a huge mistake. But then I was like, I have to finish this game. Yeah. So then you, you continued. The <laughs> every single one got harder. I had also just gone through a terrible breakup and I was like, this is how I'm gonna get through this. I'm just gonna cry like every 30 minutes really, really hard. But like at the end of it, you're just like, oh my God, I was the bad guy. Like, and it's so like, it's, it's, it's not even like it's gradual, right? Like you know it, you know it the whole time, but you're like, no, I just want to bring the love of my life back to life. I just want to save her and I'll do anything I can. Even unleash like a demon. And it's just so, it's so fucked up. Same thing with uh, Spec Ops a lot. I remember that game yeah. from a few years ago. That was pretty like a pretty brutal, brutal player punch, you know, yeah. and also, Got me into like really thinking about what foreign policy does to you know, to soldiers. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. That game gets written about a lot. Like, uh, like game academia for exactly that reason. Uh, we are getting close to no 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 it's fine I just, uh, I just want to make sure I don't think we'll be able to touch on everything that I have here I mean there's some stuff about Blizzard and Hong Kong and then Modern Warfare you know we're gonna talk about that stuff just play the Blizzard apology yeah oh yeah we have the room till five o'clock so we're no it's no rush there's no one after so so we can stick around and speak and it's no rush and some we live here now welcome to my life. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to leave room for QA. We might. Oh, we could do QA. Uh, yeah, let's um, let's wrap up and then get to QA. But um, as wrap up, um, I guess we'll go down the line. I, you know, we all exist outside of games. So tell me something that you're really into that's outside of games that you just want to share with everyone. Into? Yeah, that you're really into. Mm. Yeah, outside of games. Yeah. Okay. We're going down the line. Yeah, going down the line. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, something really into. Well, I did recently just like I just mentioned that I am really into like zine making. And if you don't know what zine is, zines are, they're basically like short magazines like made by the people for the people. They're not really like big industry like things. They're usually like a person who has like, a concept and they're like, I want to make a magazine based off of Naruto or something like that. And then they gather the artists. And sometimes it's like all the artists get paid or like they send it to charity or they're just doing it for fun and people can download it for free. So I like to do a lot of that. Yeah, <laughs> I do a lot of head motions. Um, but yeah, so I feel like that's something that I really like to do. Um, I've personally, I've done, like I've created myself and like hosted and like ran and gathered all the people like on my own. I've done three. Um, the third one being like the one I'm taking applications for right now. Um, one of them being completely for free, also for Black History Month, and the second one I did for Pride Month, um, where we donated 50% uh, of all of our funds towards Project Home. Um, if you don't know what Project Home is, they're basically a foundation that you know creates homes for people who don't really have it too great for themselves. And um, I don't remember the exact name off the top of my head, but Project Home created a, uh, a housing situation for young LGBTQ youths um, or young adults for people who are ages 16 to 23 where they can go and like, you know, just pay, basically pay what they could to live in no housing. So we donated money to that cause um, to make sure that they can, you know, keep everything running just fine. We raised about like $500 or so. So that was pretty good for like my first time doing like a charity thing. I wasn't expecting that kind of outreach. So that's something I necessarily like to do with magazines and uh, eat. I like food. I was gonna say food. Yeah, food's great. Food's really great. Uh, no, uh, for the first time in my life, I'm super into my day job. Um, I love my day job. I'm a research analyst at a nonprofit downtown, and research 
all kinds of stuff with economics. Uh, we published a book in May, and it was called A Brief History of Doom, and it's about how uh, <laughs> economic disasters are correlated with private debt. So whenever people talk about economic disasters, they focus on what happened right before the disaster and what happened after the disaster, and they don't look at the gradual buildup, which my boss believed was private debt. And so we researched like 43 disasters and put together all these amazing spreadsheets of like all the data we found, like spanning like six big countries and 200 years and it was a lot of fun and then we immediately started on another book which is uh, going to be an illustrated history of business in the United States and it's like grad school but I get paid for it so I love it. It's been really great. It's also my whole life as educators. <laughs> that rules. I'm really bad. Um, I uh, read a lot of short fiction and write short fiction. Uh, there's no way so far as I've discovered to turn that into a job. <laughs> I don't think I'd like to. Be a job anyway. Don't hire me, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, short fiction. That's it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this dude, make, this dude makes games. I spent well, a lot of time. He works all the time. We share a lab. Yeah. He's there all the time making games. And that's not something I'm proud of. Um, I want to give that on the record because I think uh, crunch is endemic in this industry. And uh, it's really hard because I think with video games, I'll start by saying that I've thought a lot recently about this, that at some point in the very near future, if I haven't already hit it, I will probably have spent more time thinking about playing or making games than I have engaging in the real life. That is like a real thing that will probably happen with me. And that makes me really sad. <laughs> um, but it's hard because I think games are so multi-interdisciplinary um, where they have music, and they have writing, and they have programming, of course, and they have art, 3D art, 2D art. So everywhere I look, I'm thinking of like how this might transition into a game, or like what can I learn from this that will be a, that I could apply to, to game development. And it's everything. It's like everything out there, any entertainment medium um, can kind of funnel back into games in some way. And so, yeah, definitely I read a lot of like hard science fiction short stories, and I love you know, all different types of music and things like that. You just got a dog. I, but I was going to say, <laughs> I got a dog. Very um, elite that's dog. Very important part. Part. Okay. How did you not leave the dog? <laughs> because, yeah, it, it forces me to, like, go Sorry. outside every day and to, like, just be away from screens and stuff like that. Um, and so that would probably be my answer, is, like, going and, like, going jogging or, like, playing with my dog or whatever it is. Um, because that's something that is... From what I can tell, not like directly applicable to like going into game design and game development, um, which is something that I, you know, I really am trying to get better at, at doing. Uh, do we have any questions? Yes. Um, so one topic I was thinking of because it just tied into like most of the things we're talking about is the uh, military use of video games. It's pretty much like one of the examples of the serious games. One place is the government puts millions of dollars in contracts, and as far as video game violence, like. Internal use games are literally designed to help people like know how to be violent in scenarios. The military recruits at video game conventions. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, like I remember in the mid 2000s, they created commercial grade first person shooters. As they were at PAX East yeah. last year. Yeah, as a recruiting mechanism. Even board games have been essentially part of military like education training for 200 years at this point. Um, and with uh, political stuff, there's a ton of opportunity for uh, what you call protest with games. But games have also been weaponized as propaganda all over the world to the point where like 
every platform has a hey, you doing propaganda like part of their content question. Sure, the bad news is the bad guys can also make games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they have all the money. It, yeah, so what do you think of like that part of the game industry, uh, the fact that the government will spend a lot of money on that and like what to really do about it, like embrace it, like try to prevent it, like what do I think about it? I mean, I have severe depression. <laughs> That's what I think about it. Uh, I will say that it is that it is, it is true, um, and it will only become more true because the primary skill set of the future of warfare is going to be fast twitch reflexes that are put into drones. So it's going to be interesting. Okay. It, it can only get get worse, I guess. Um, and it's and games aren't going to save us from that. Um, it's only going to be the regular kind of political mobilization that, that prevents us from, from that type of future. Uh, but yeah, it is true. You should be on the lookout. And don't don't talk to those people at the game conventions. They're not they're not allies, right? They're yeah, I mean, one of the games I was talking about when I went to IndieCade, one of the games that was funded by government by European government was a game where you're walking around a village and you're like talking to your family and you're like doing all this stuff and then the game ends and it's two people and they're each playing a different game and then you switch and then you're a drone and you're following this kid around his village and then you blow up the village. So you got to see the other side of it and I was just like, I don't want to play this. Like, but I mean, that's not getting super funded like the military, so. You didn't even have a question, Phil. You just. It's kind of the, the counter side to like most of the topics. It's like there's a, a ton of like a ton of good uses, and then there right. are also nightmares. Um, well, I mean, like there's like what two thousand billionaires in this country. Like they should be venture capitalists for video games. They should be doing all kinds of stuff. But instead, they're like. I, I will say it. It is a little bit heartening if the bad guys are noticing how effective this stuff can be because they aren't the people making the games, right? And they can't. Like, uh, you, most of these games are pretty bad, uh, at least right now. Um, so it's in, if, if, if they're seeing something with all their money that we're not, um, eventually they're gonna come to the people like us who make games. But really the power lies with the people who make the games, not the, um, you know, not these huge funding institutions. I just said the opposite at the beginning of this talk though. About the funding thing, anyway. Just you know, just don't make don't make games for these people. That's yeah, you it. can decline things. You are not forced to make anything. You're not obligated to do stuff. If people just want to have the money, to use all the money so nice though. You don't gotta attain that money. It's like remember Shannon the Just something I've noticed, uh, just as a whole, and I'm wondering if you guys agree with it or not. Uh, I'm a I'm a psychology major, but I've also loved video games for my whole life, and I noticed that every time. Um, somebody's talking about like on, on any side of the political aisle or whenever somebody talks about like violent video games or video games causing violence i notice it's like it seems like a symptom uh, like a way to just cover up the symptoms instead of finding out the real problems about this country or about foreign policy or about you know what happens in other countries that affects us it's like it's a way to just deflect kind of the real problems in our society would you, would you agree video games are an easy scapegoat yeah exactly that's what it's going on yeah, yeah. 110% agree with that, yeah, absolutely. Um, I will absolutely play Animal Crossing for uh, many hours straight just to avoid my problems. Yeah, I admit it. Yep, I will sit there and live my little fantasy life and I'll talk to my animal friends and then go buy a new outfit and get my hair done and be like, living it easy out here while I'm the outside. I'm like, smiling with pain. Yeah, but you know, like, smiling with pain, I'll do the same thing in The Sims where I'm like, look at my Sim, making like, 
like 22 an hour and has a nice house and pool in the backyard and all that good stuff. Like, not me, though. Not really. My trainer just stayed in a hotel for free last night. Oh, my God. Get off. I think it's also probably because they're new. They're like the new hot medium. And so it's easy to point to because no one understands it. The okay boomers, like they don't understand it, right? So it's you know it's the new thing that you just want to put blame on. Yeah, like in the seventies it was D and D. Yeah, one of our earlier speakers said that even at one point in the eighteen fifties it was chess. Chess was the new evil. Then all of the kids were chess is the whole thing. Oh yeah, reading. There was reading. Reading was really new. Reading was for women. Yeah. Reading is for women. One. It's also for everybody. Reading was for women, but it was also for bad people. Like women. We are the bad people. We're the bad. Question the bad here. Um, so, you were talking about serious games, and you were saying about the problem that you have uh, of a narrow audience, and inadequate funding, and uh, good backing to it, but if, if it doesn't reach out to like you know, a bigger audience, nothing really happens with the game, unfortunately, the project doesn't fail, but it seems to go under. Um, do you think it's because of the exact approach? Because there's this one game that I played years ago, I don't know if it exactly relates to being a serious game, in the sense, but um, it's called I think Papa Ego. Oh yeah. Papa Ego, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, it tells of uh, I think domestic abuse. Uh, alcoholism and domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, al alcoholism and domestic abuse. And but the way I learned about the game wasn't initially because of the outright message that it told me from the start. It's the way I learned from it um, overall playing throughout the game because the message is always there, but you realize the message the more and more you get through it. So I'm wondering, is it because of the approach of the game that you're making that it makes it so difficult? Or is it exactly the audience that makes it difficult? Like, I'm a little bit up. Yeah, so I think kind of what I was talking about, serious games having a hard time reaching a mass audience, it's because, again, kind of going back to Corey and I's definition of serious games, they're not, entertainment isn't the primary purpose of those projects. Think of them like as educational games, right? I think educational games, you can educate it in whatever subject you're, you know, you're paid to explore, but it's really hard to sell people on educational games. Um, what I think Papu Yo does, what I think uh, That Dragon Cancer does, kind of all these very, very empathetic games where you're kind of asked to step into a, a certain position and explore certain relationships and certain experiences. Um, I think those are meant to be cathartic experiences they are meant to be entertaining in a sense that you are experiencing, uh, like having a, a cathartic experience. Uh, and so I, I think those have tremendous commercial application. And I think that's actually probably where the future of storytelling is going in this medium. I think as we start exploring more personal stories, um, I think indie developers are already doing that uh, and we're gonna see more and more and more of that. Um, but I, I do, in my mind at least, I draw a very, because I work on both. I work on like more empathetic, more kind of thematically mature games, and then I work on like games with educational purpose. And I call those like serious games, and then I call those good games. <laughs> uh, and I think hopefully there is overlap between those two things. Um, but I think there's very different purposes, and because of that, they have very different commercial applications. I actually think the audience for this type of game, the, we can just, just for simplicity call them mature games or whatever, mm -hmm. is growing, not Yes, shrinking. oh yeah. absolutely, yes. Um, the, the small audience problem is more like um, the, 
I mean, Malcolm's a great example. Like, a, a lot of resources will go into this game and it's really good at what it's supposed to do, but how big is the audience really of people who are interested in, like, the historical roots of alchemy? Like, yeah. um, Well, and not, how much are they spending on marketing? Can you only play it in the museum? Or can you play it at your house? Right. Like, there's yeah. all kinds of factors that limit the audience. Um, and, and in a way, the point of the project is to narrowly target an audience. So so it's, it's more just, it's like, uh, yeah, it's just more like, where's the money going um, on these? In, in the game development world, and is that reaching people? Um, yeah. I mean, I would argue that games like Pavio and That Drank Cancer and Heartlife are not for entertainment. I, I would say that they're deliberately to put you in the shoes of someone else and teach you something. Um, this is on what exactly you just said. Um, they're not deliberately for entertainment, they're meant to teach you something, but in the fact of, uh, that it did teach me something, um, the fact is that I actually, when I played it, I enjoyed it. It was in, I, I found it as entertainment. A few, not me, just uh, a few of my friends have also played it. It was on the Xbox game store for a little while, so you know, it had something to it. Um, and it had its entertainment value that was also there, so I'm wondering is like, for serious games, I understand the approach is to serious, it's meant to strictly teach you something, but is it, it, is it exactly, does it have to be extremely serious, like, it, is there no way to approach it a little bit better to where you can take that narrow audience and, you know, open up the values of, well, it's video game. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think so, I, I just want to say one quick thing, say I mean, as much as you want. when my husband watched me play Papers, Please, he was like, I don't get it. Why don't you just let your son die? <laughs> then, you'll, yeah, yeah. then you'll have money. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, first of all, you're a monster. <laughs> so like, there's definitely there are definitely people who just play those games and they're just like, yep, that was a game, that was entertaining. But like for me, it's like I get really into it. Like Brothers: A Tale of Two Sons. I wish somebody had told me what that game was about before I played it because I wish I hadn't played it. Like it was, it really upset me. Like that game really. Like I just am really empathetic, and I just don't know like. I, maybe I'm not their target audience because I, I, I feel too much. I, I think this conversation you're just hitting on ex exactly why the term serious games is just so fraught is because it's mixing things that I actually think are quite different. And, and really the distinction is, <laughs> this is gonna sound really mean, but like one of them is art and the other one is like, it's like commerce. It's right. like, yes. uh, yeah. like there's artistic, qualities that go into these paid games, but they're not built with the express purpose of reaching, uh, now I gotta talk about what art is, man, this is hard. But well, like, I feel like, I feel like, like they're taking something and they're, they're gamifying it. They're like, I want you to take this thing that I want people to, to feel, and that I want to see and understand and learn about, and I want you to make it into a game. It, it all so comes down to the outcome of the, of the person who's, who's stakeholding these projects. It's like, we have this group of, of, of um, I'll give you hard examples. Um, in the EGS, there was um, a game that was funded by Pfizer because there's um, uh, people who have hemophilia, for, for a while they infuse themselves with medicine, and then they get to a point where, I'm sorry, their parents infuse them, and they get to a point where they have to start infusing themselves with medicine. It's a daily thing, similar to like diabetes, you know, diabetes medication, right? And it's very hard to train children away from, to, to administer their own medicine. Um, that lab, the lab I work in now, frankly, took on a project to help train children infuse themselves with this medicine, That's right? Wild. Yeah, it, it's awesome, but 
that that is serious games. It's like you start with a very discrete problem that people think can be solved by games. We're doing one with the NSF where they're like people are people don't really people don't know anything about cybersecurity. True, uh, but there are a few very small things you can learn that that help you and will inoculate an entire population against large-scale cyber threat. How you can you guys make a game to train people with these things? Sure, we can do that, right? That's serious games. This other group uh, is what I would just call art. <laughs> like it's just like the same thing as um, making, you know, whatever, making a film, making making a song. Um, it's the difference between a band just making a song because they want to make a song and like corn pops coming up to them and being like, yo, make a corn pop song. Like, because it's a jingle. <laughs> um, so all that being said, so if we want to draw the distinction between like mature and serious games, I think it's also true what you're saying, which is that mature games aren't built expressly to entertain, right? In the same way that like a, a very difficult art film isn't built expressly to like make you a good time. Right? Um, it, sometimes it's meant to like challenge you and disturb you and maybe make you not even want to watch the thing. Right? Oh, I love that though. <laughs> well, I know. That, that's the thing. It's like I I love watching like Requiem to a Dream or, or like watching tragedies. Like people like watching tragedies because it's a cathartic experience. And then after you you know have a positive emotional response after you get through all the negative emotions of you know when you're actually in the moment playing. Um, that's what a lot of great art does, is, is evoke very strong feelings. Um, and Even then, if it's like disgust, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. People like, people love to feel disgusted. That's why you watch the song movies and stuff like that. Um, people actually enjoy those things. Uh, and so I think... That's why I watch Human Exactly. Uh, yeah. So that's why I think video games are finally starting to explore these things. We haven't done that before. This is brand new. Like it's, up until this point, it's been capturing the emotion of fun, and that's been the one emotion. It's like, let's make something fun, and you're not feeling anything else. It's just focusing on that one thing. And we're finally starting to see with uh, different narrative designs, different character designs, things like that, we're finally starting to explore these different emotions. And I think that's not only the future of the medium, I think it's also one of its greatest strengths. Like everything you're saying sounds exactly like the problems with working in the games industry at this point. It's like this market expects so much and there's only so much you can give, right? And there's this precedent set by these monolithic publishers that have been in it for like decades now. And they've like kind of grabbed up all the market as you do in a capitalist system, right? That's kind of the point of the game. Um, and they've done that. And now they're moving to this subscription, like games as a service model. And what, what does that mean for indie developers? Like, how does one... So, so it's bad. It is I very bad, and he'll tell you exactly why, but I just want to point out that what you're talking about isn't unique to games, it's just the Lyft, Uber model, whatever. All these companies are operating at a loss. They are fundamentally um, sort of flipping this, the even the, the most cynical interpretation of the way capitalism is supposed to work and saying, um, actually, we'll just lose a bunch of money um, we don't even have to beat you on the prices, right? Like, we don't even have to operate on the free market. Like, what we can do is just operate at a loss forever. Uh, and, and under that, like, economic theory has even yet to reckon with that. It's completely insane. So how is somebody who's already supposed to compete on the free market, which was already a scam, um, supposed to operate with companies that are willing to operate at a net loss indefinitely? Uh, that, that
that's what game developers are dealing with right now. Um, Apple Arcade, we know some developers who got some investment from Apple Arcade. If you just do the rough back of the napkin math, they are losing millions on Apple Arcade. Apple is losing so much money. Uh, so if you're not an Apple Arcade dev, how are you supposed to compete with a company that can operate at a, like not even collect enough sales? It's yeah, economically unfeasible. Um, so the way that hits devs is exactly what Tom's about to describe. Because well, I think I think it it determines, and this is the really sad and scary thing from like an independent developer perspective, is that I think PlayStation, Xbox, Steam, Apple, Google. And Nintendo just does something. But I think those other ones uh, will decide what games get made and what don't. Because they're going to be the ones deciding what games get put on their platform. And I can tell you from personal experience, we shipped Soul on Xbox. And there are many things that happened, many things that went wrong. Um, but we sold maybe 60 copies in the first week. And that's a lot less than we thought. <laughs> uh, because it used to be we put it on a console, a home console, major home console and you would have tons of eyes on it. Um, that is not the case now because Xbox and PlayStation and everyone's doing the same thing, are devoting all their resources to promoting their own subscription services. So if you're not part of the Xbox Game Pass, if you're not part of PlayStation Now, if you're not part of you know, any of these subscription things, uh, they're not gonna push you because they wanna sell, of course, more subscriptions. Um, and so your game just won't be seen uh, unless, you know, and get your game popular on Twitter or other avenues. And so the marketing isn't there. And so we're gonna be moving into this space where once consumers just aren't buying standalone games anymore, um, all the power lays with whoever owns these subscriptions things. Uh, so it's probably similar to something like Netflix or who, I don't know how they decide what content gets made, um, but the, the, the power of what does get made is in their hands. And for me, that's really, really scary because I'm seeing kind of like where, I, there used to be like a lot of publishers. I, I have a hard time envisioning where game publishers are gonna be in like 10 years because all the marketing and all the exposure is gonna be done through these subscription owners. Um, and the, the amount of people controlling what gets made, I think is about to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that really scares me as a creator who creates really short kind of narrative, more experiential, more experimental experiences um, that might not have commercial appeal. Um, that's really, really scary. Uh, we did have two, two Philly devs who released their game. When they released their game, it was part of a package. So mm -hmm. Cypher Prime released one of their games in a Humble Bundle. Yeah, that's a good model. I don't know how much money they made from that. And Humble then, good. and then Ash released Dragonfin Soup. It was a PlayStation Plus. Plus. When he released it, it was the PlayStation Plus free game of the month. I have no idea how much money Sony gave him. I have no idea how many downloads he got. And I don't know if he made any money after that because presumably everybody who wanted the game downloaded for free if they were part of PlayStation Plus. And I don't know if you could even buy it for that first month unless you got it for free through PlayStation Plus. So I don't know what the metrics are like, like kind of releasing your game for free but getting paid by the company versus what Tommy has experienced. Just so ironic that the end of the whole free market experiment is gonna be like, five dudes at five companies <laughs> sitting there being like, you get to be on here, you get to make money, and you get to make money. Yeah. Like, that is, how did that happen? And right? in some way too, they're like convincing us that it's more free market, that we're more in control of it. Like right. that's kind of yeah. the fucked up thing.
Okay, can we thank our panelists for being here? Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us and we'll see everyone next time.